Welcome back to The Chosen Journey with Steve Carsey. Steve, we are on chapter 10. Can you believe that? I know. Time flies, right? Especially when we talk about uh, different things going on and the journeys people are taking. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun and, uh, you know, things are moving right along. It's, uh, I'd like to say maybe it's 80-90% baseball, but there's a lot of life in there in between and, you know, your life, a little bit of my life people's lives that intertwined, you know, it's, it's amazing the people that touch us and how they do affect their journey. You know, the more we go through these chapters, I'm realizing more and more why you wanted this to be the journey and not the story. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I thought a lot about it when we discussed what we were doing and, you know, it, it just came down to uh, what it is in general about people's lives. Uh, you know, people's lives, uh, take so many twists and turns. Uh, your life has, my life has, uh, and and I know so many people who who listen to us. Their their lives uh, go down different paths. So uh, you know, it, it, it's fun to take a journey. Uh, there's some adversity along the way, and uh, you know, it's it's one of those things that when you talk about it, uh, it, it really helps heal. I got to tell you, you know, as far as the journey wise and, you know, there'll be memories as far as memory lane goes, but also memories of what's going on when we actually filmed it, you know, and when we had our discussion before we jumped in today, I let you know that uh, I, I got a shoulder thing today and it's been going on for a few days now and it's my non pitching arm, so to speak. Yeah. But, uh, I got to tell you, buddy, you know, I'm not a pitcher, but when you got this sharp pain going and it feels like somebody is like taking scissors and just stabbing you constantly. I re I told you, I have a newfound appreciation for the pitching brotherhood because I never experienced this kind of pain before. And when you throw the amount of innings, the amount of pitches you do, you know, how often you get the barking shoulder, so to speak. Well, it takes its toll. I mean, it's an unnatural motion throwing a baseball. Uh, that's why a lot of guys get injured. And when you throw it at high velocities, like guys are capable of doing today and, and how they train for it, uh, you know, sometimes things happen. And uh, whether it's your elbow or your shoulder, and uh, obviously your shoulder's barking a little bit. So you kind of have an understanding of, you know, certain things that you do during the day. You go grab something and it'll catch or, uh, it just doesn't feel great at times. And, and that's what players go through, whether you're a position player or uh, especially a pitcher because you're throwing off a mound that's elevated, you're throwing overhand, you're throwing curveballs, you're throwing splits, you're throwing change-ups, uh, you're manipulating the ball and you're doing certain things that uh, you weren't meant to do with the baseball. But, uh, you know, that's, that's part of the game and guys understand that, but that's why they train their arms. That's why it takes time to come back from an injury uh, and get to the point where you can sustain, uh, you know, uh, the pitching portion of it with how many pitches you're going to throw. I, I kind of feel like as a player, when you're making that decision, you know, when you're feeling something and then the decision, do I tell the coach or not tell the coach, you know, I can work through this. Cause you know, even like now I can lift it up. I can go lift weights, no problem. But the thing is, I know if I'm going to do certain things with it, I could, I could potentially make it worse, you know? And I feel like players that play through it and all of a sudden the stats are affected. They're saying, what's the deal with the stats? Oh, now they're making excuses because they're injured. But if they're saying, you know what, I'm injured. You know what? I shouldn't take the chance. I'm going to go on the injured reserve. Then they're damned as well. Like you're almost in a no-win position that way. Yeah. Well, 
at the at the end of the day, it, it comes down to you know each player uh, and and how much you can call it pain or what you can withstand. But when you're loose and you're warm, it's a lot different story. And then it's when you cool down and you have to recover, and then you wake up the next day is usually when it stiffens up and gets sore. But you know each individual player has a, a certain threshold, pain threshold is what I call it, and certain guys can pitch through certain things where other guys can't and and it's just part of it you kind of have to identify and understand uh what is sore and what is actually hurt uh or an injury portion of it uh because there's a difference between the two guys can be sore and play through the soreness uh but when you're hurt it's much more difficult to uh you know uh, sustain the level that you want to play at and be successful so nolan ryan was he actually human or a robot? Because I remember watching him through all those years, all those games, all those no hitters. How did the man do it? You know, uh, it, is it like a freak of nature or is it just good genetics? What, what, you know, that you rarely see the kind of numbers and, and, and what a Nolan Ryan does, you know, it, it, back then and in this day and age. Well, you took the words right in my, out of my mouth. He's a freak of nature. You know, it's, it's, I don't think there's any rhyme or reason. He was just able to be able to repeat his mechanics. He was able to have a, a consistent release point. Um, you know, he had a, obviously uh, a very talented and gifted arm to be able to throw that hard for such a period of time. But, uh, you know, he worked out, he trained, he did the things that he felt like he needed to do uh, to stay in shape and, and to keep his arm in shape. And, you know, he was one of the lucky ones. Uh, you know, he he was he was capable of going out there every fifth day, making sometimes 45 starts in a year back in the day when that was uh, a thing. Uh, he was throwing 300 innings, I think, a couple of times. Yeah, you barely see 200 innings today, and he was throwing 300. And uh, it's just amazing what he was able to do, and that's why he's one of the greats in, in the game. How many, how many? And also in pitches per game, right? Like complete games left, right, and center. Pitch counts meant nothing at that point. Un, un freaking believable, you know, when I, when I reflect back on it. I know I think it was the football. I think when he started that trend, remember tossing the football and everybody thought, oh, tossing the football is going to be a thing. Did that ever catch on in different uh, major league uh, uh, camps as far as you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a thing today. I, you, if you go there for batting practice or whatnot, you'll see certain teams, their guys throw footballs. Uh, it's, it's actually a, a really good drill. It gets your hand in the right position. It, it, it makes you shorten up a little bit. And uh, if you can throw a spiral with the football, that means you probably can throw a pretty good slider. So it's very similar hand position to, to what guys are able to do. And, uh, you know, when I was with the Brewers, we used to throw the football all the time in the outfield before we went through our throwing program. I was going to ask you if that's something you brought to your pitchers as a coach, or is that something that was already in place at the time when you came in? No, it was already in place. I mean, we did it in, when I was in Cleveland in the minor leagues, guys would bring a football out. Guys enjoy football. Guys use it running around in the outfield to, to get their legs loose and, and just to have a little bit of fun. Uh, you know, baseball is a long season as we talked about, and it can become a bit of a grind. So for them to have fun doing something else, uh, as long as it's not injury detrimental to, to their arm or what they're doing, uh, I say go for it. Love it. Love it. You know what? It's just a good mentality for people to understand as far as how, how 
training goes and then as far as the conditioning goes but you know what for us everyday joes you know what we can get it too you never know you never know now today's topic uh in the chapter is getting drafted in the first round it's something we agreed upon that we're going to discuss something you said was very dear to your heart that you wanted to tell the story and as i was marinating and putting this together i was thinking if you could walk us through you know the mentality before getting drafted what it's like in high school and the whole process getting into it, I don't think it's always as glamorous as people think it is. Yeah, I mean, the draft is a lot different today than it was uh, in the late 80s. And then obviously 1990, when I got drafted, uh, there wasn't the social media, there wasn't all of these lists of prospects, there wasn't, uh, you know, computers that were, uh, you know, getting all of the information and spitting it out to uh, the scouts, you know, now a lot of teams scout from a computer in general, there's not as many physical people or physical scouts going out there and watching games all the time. And that's kind of how it's changed a little bit. But uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, when I got drafted, it was a scout there that was looking at me. He wrote my name down. He started following me. It got put into the, got put into the major league baseball database and then uh you know that's shared within the realms of uh the teams at that particular time and and then they go out and and look at who they want to oh so was it like 20 something scouts following you around every single game in high school uh no but scouts you know they read they figure it out you know usually scouts like to try to find the diamond in the rough right i mean they're the ones out uh you know hitting the pavement they go into these little towns and in, in these states, whether it's Louisiana or Texas or California, and they go to these places and, and try to find somebody that nobody else is on. But that's hard to do these days because of, again, social media and all of the perfect games and uh, these, these tournament travel baseball teams, all the kids are playing it uh, and, and all of the good ones get noticed. Um, and, and there's no like diamond in the rough anymore for, for these guys. And there's not a ton of scouts going out and, and pounding the pavement anymore because of the computers. But, uh, you know, it was just one of those things. I had, I had a couple of scouts, you know, looking at me and especially when I was a senior in high school and, uh, you know, I just went out there and played the game and pitched and, and did well. And, and the opportunity presented itself. Like just to put a perspective for the people listening at home. And again, you know, we always say hit the subscribe button, hit the like, you know, put the comments in because as you're listening in, you know, we want to hear your feedback and you will make it on the episode as long as you keep it pretty clean. But uh, we do love to have the interaction, certainly. And but imagine the way we have the interaction today and you're watching it in Steve and I's day. There was no MLB network running 24 seven. There was no MLB.com, MILB.com. You know, there was none of that stuff where you, everything was at your fingertips, you know. Now you could turn on your TV and watch four games at once, at least maybe six games. Back then, you know, you're watching regional games pretty much. It wasn't that easy to get outside games. So there wasn't as much access to the information, to the prospects, you know, the futures game, right? Yes, <laughs> forget absolutely. About, forget about that. There's no such thing like that. So if you wanted to know those, those, those you know, can miss prospects, there's very few that you're going to hear about unless you were actually in that region. Would you say that's fair? That's very fair. I mean, growing up in New York, I had the Mets and the Yankees, right? And then I had the Saturday game of the week. Uh, and whoever they put on TV on the, on the Saturday game of the week, that's who I watched. Uh, I didn't get to flip on DirecTV and, 
pop onto a Brewers game or pop onto a Cincinnati Reds game if that's the team that I liked and wanted to watch it. Uh, it was a regional game. It was uh, your hometown team, uh, essentially. I was lucky that I had two growing up in New York, so I got to watch both, uh, a little bit more baseball. Uh, obviously, you know, that's why TBS came about and they started playing the Atlanta Braves games, right, with Ted Turner, and, and they became a, a national hit. And that's why a lot of people like the Braves because that was like one of the first teams that was, you know, fully around the United States because of the, because of the cable station to, to watch right. the Braves play. And so in your draft class going into that year, you know, we were talking uh, off air at the end of uh, our last chapter and uh, a name you threw in a pitcher's name that uh, was really highly touted at the time went pretty high. His name was? Todd Van Poppel. Todd Van Poppel. And it's interesting because you know how everything segues, even though I don't intend it to? Yeah, people absolutely. Were, who are who people comparing him at the time to? Roger Clemens. Roger Clemens, Nolan Ryan, because of the whole association, oh, right? Texas thing. That's right. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. He went 14th overall to the A's. So yeah. he was planning on going to college and the University of Texas as well. Uh, so... You know, it was one of those things where the where the A's, I think, went out on a limb and, and chose him with the 14th pick as well. But it was like, you don't really get to hear about them, first of all, at all. And if you do, there's a, there's a big reason why, but there's a lot of pressure that goes into it. And even though they're highly touted, they may not even go that high. When when you were going into this, uh, you were start, it's funny because when we talk off air, I think to myself, oh, I wish I kept recording because I wish people could hear this. So now we're going to go back to the memory banks and talk about that a bit because of where your draft position was and where you could have gone. And it's not so simple. There's politics involved with that. So let's hear more about Steve Carsey's story in getting drafted in your draft year. Yeah. So senior year, we're coming down to the end of it. I, uh, I had signed a uh, letter of intent to go play at LSU at the time, uh, college down in Louisiana. They were very good. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to see, get seen by, those coaches and, and, and the people who uh, recruit uh, high school players to go to college. So I'd sign my, my letter of intent there, um, you know, continue on playing the rest of the season. I had a high school coach, not the guy, not the coach who was coaching our team at the particular time, but one who was at the school uh, who asked me to go to Christ the King to go play. And he ended up getting fired before I became a senior. But he always helped me. He was always a nice guy in doing that, um, which I thought he was a nice guy. But he ended up, uh, you know, trying to go, you know, behind my back and get a job with LSU uh, if I got the sign there. And then as the draft was coming up, he was telling Major League Baseball, uh, which is the scouting association, uh, that I wasn't going to sign. I was going to college no matter what. And if you draft them, you're going to waste a draft pick on him if you drop, draft them in the top five or the top ten. Um, so without my knowledge, all of this stuff was going on. And, you know, draft day came. Uh, again, I'm pretty naive to the situation back then. I was just playing the game, and my, my sights were set on LSU particularly because I wanted to go to college, uh, not knowing that I would get drafted in the first round um you know pick 22 came around the toronto blue jays had that pick uh and they took a shot on me and chose me with the 22nd pick uh in the first round i got a phone call later that day after we finished our uh city championship game for high school at yankee stadium which we ended up losing two to one 
Uh, and I got a call later on that night when I got home and the Blue Jays told me that they drafted me in the first round. Now you were telling me though, that the Blue Jays did go to some extent to find you and to speak with you, uh, wherever you were located, you were going through some personal circumstances at that point. And, uh, if you want to let us know more about that. Yeah. So, uh, the coach at that particular time who was negotiating on my, my behalf, uh, little did I know without your knowledge, without my knowledge, I didn't know he was negotiating on my half with the blue Jays. And he was trying to, uh, wrangle a job with them saying, Hey, if you give me X job, I can get Steve to sign and, uh, things like that. So, um, at the end of the day, I didn't know that was going on. Um, you know, my mom was in the hospital at that particular time. She was going through a surgery and whatnot. Uh, and next thing I know, I get, uh, I get a phone call from the Toronto Blue Jays saying and asking me if I'm going to want to play professional baseball or if I am going to college. You know, they're having a hard time negotiating with my representative. And I kind of took a double take on the phone and I was like, my representative, I, I don't have anybody that is negotiating for me. We went through the uh, story about that then, and they came down to New York and, uh, you know, we met uh, at a diner next and to the hospital. They, where they being who? Uh, Gordash and Pat Gillick. And then I had a conversation with them at the diner. Um, we went through the process and, you know, they gave me a few days to, you know, work through what I wanted to do. Um, and at the end of the few days, I had a talk with my family. My mom was recovering well. And, uh, you know, they came in and I decided that uh, I wanted to play professional baseball. And I decided to negotiate, uh, you know, my signing bonus uh, on my own. And uh, off we went. You're how old at this point? I'm 18. You're 18. 18 with uh, Pat Gillick <laughs> and Gordash. Two of the shrewdest negotiators in baseball history with an 18-year-old. A little bit intimidating, would you say? I was naive. I had no idea what was going on. No I knew way. I wanted to play professional baseball at that time. I threw out a number to them, and before I could even get it out of my mouth, they agreed to it. So I, I know I think I probably cheated myself out a little bit of money at that time, but at the end of the day, it all worked out. It's, it's a much different time now. You know, it's funny when you, when you read the draft stories of at least the first rounders, if not the second rounders, everybody has uh, pre, pre-signed bonuses. Everybody knows slots. We know the slots as far as am I going above slot, below slot. Again, no such thing at this point whatsoever. You know, we're not thinking about caps at this point. It was just a different world back then. Yeah, there's no secrets today. Well, guys know that they're going to get drafted in the first round for the most part when they know they're going to get drafted in the first round within the first 10 picks, uh, they pretty much agree to the contract that they're going to sign. And then it just becomes a pump and circumstance after that. Blows my mind though, that they drafted you and you actually did not, had no idea they were going to do it until they actually pulled the trigger. I wonder how far they knew into it that they were planning it. Did they, did they relay any of that information to you or did they keep their cards to the vest, so to speak? Oh, they kept their cards to the vest, but uh, they didn't think I was getting to the number 22 pick. Uh, they were actually shocked that uh, I had fell to, to number 22. And and if you think about it, I think it was a year or two before that, maybe 89, they did the same thing with John Olerud, you know, uh, mm. and, and he had told them about not signing and, and whatnot. And 
he ended up uh, getting drafted by Toronto and signing and, and had a great career there. But uh, yeah, they, uh, they didn't know. Uh, I didn't know. I mean, I didn't even know I was going to get drafted in the first round to be quite honest with you. Uh, I just kind of played the game and, and, and things just transpired. I actually was at Jonal Rood's uh, first major league game, by the way. That's uh, very nice. I was at David Wells premiere. I was at Jonal Rood's, you know, I've, I've attended a couple of baseball games in my life, but I remember like the man just threw himself right into the majors, which was the most obscene thing, you know, and so difficult to do, and especially back then, back then, everybody had some sort of seasoning in the minors, you know, that was just, that was the thing, you know, you never even thought of somebody coming straight up, right? Yeah, it's, again, it's another way the game has changed, right? There's a lot of younger players in the big leagues because of salary and how they're able to suppress salaries and, and get the, the payroll to where they want it to be. You know, the middle class is kind of getting cut out a little bit between the, you know, three and six million dollar players. They'd rather go with a younger guy. And, uh, you know, that's just that's just the way the game has changed. But, you know, usually, you know, late, mid, early 90s mid 90s late 90s you had a 25 man roster when you broke spring training those 25 guys were your team unless there was a major injury and then you know you'd have a couple il stints or dl stints is what they called it back then and guys would get shuffled up and down but not like it is today no and, and that's one of the things you know you read a lot and again it's, i think social media has a lot to do with this we're saying the, the person is hitting, they're raking, you know, they're pitching so well. You got to bring them up. We need them immediately. We need them immediately. And then they come and some take off like a lightning storm and some falter and they'll say, oh, no, you ruined them. You brought them up too soon. You know, you can't win. I know Vladdy Guerrero Jr. over here, you know, there was always a debate with it, you know, and why wasn't he hitting the second he got over here? And people don't imagine, you know, the amount of pressure today versus 10 years, 20 years, 30 years ago. Imagine what it was like back in the 50s, right? But Every day people are on it. Everybody's reading on every social media, you know, they're chatting in the chat boards and, you know, we're analyzing every single game, every single pitch, every single bat, you know, it's such a different game today. And especially those contracts, you know, people that have never played one single game and some of them are signing over some five, seven year contracts. And back when you were a rookie, we never heard of that. We would never would have imagined that. Hmm. Yeah. That just didn't happen back then. No matter how good you were, you kind of went through the, the transition of, you know, being a rookie and then, you know, playing your second and third year and trying to get the arbitration before anybody even thought about a multi-year deal. Uh, you know, Wanda Franco is a, a great example, right? Yes. He had a great half a year and then he comes up and, you know, they give him $180 million for, I think it was 11 years or 12 years or whatever it is. And they're taking a gamble on that, but they yep. think he's going to be uh, a tremendous player for that organization for a long time. And, and that's their prerogative, right? I mean, Absolutely. if that's what they want to do and, they feel like that's the best move financially for them. Uh, they can do it. Uh, but other teams just don't work in that fashion. Uh, you know, Tampa has to do that because, uh, you know, the, the way they, they run their team and, and the way the payroll is. It's an evolving door. And I think of the Astros and Singleton was a first base prospect. Can't yes. miss. Can't miss. The man could rake. But you know what? It didn't work out. But, you know, some people take the financial security, some don't. You know, it's Juan Soto in Washington, and there's a giant debate. You know, should he have taken the money in, in New York? Aaron Judge, should he have taken the money? You know, and we start debating those aspects. And at some point, you know, it's, guys, let's just play the game. Let's enjoy it. And that stuff will just settle itself out at the end of the day. You decide whether you're going to bet on yourself or you're not, right? Yeah, and at the end of the day, like, you look at Judge, and he's already made a really nice, good chunk of change. It's not like he's scraping for money by any means. 
you know, through it, through his first five years, uh, he has probably a lot of money in the bank so he can bet on himself when guys don't have a lot of money in the bank and you never know what injuries can kind of occur, especially with a pitcher. Uh, they're more apt to take that long-term deal at an earlier age and get, uh, you know, get secure with their family and, and, and a nice contract. I think especially when you're a young prospect coming to a new country and you don't have the schooling, maybe didn't even barely went to high school. English might be your second, third, fourth language, right? You have here, your people you trust and you don't know which direction to go in. That can be very difficult as well. You know, ima you know imagine, for example, I took you and I threw you in Europe and now you're playing baseball in Europe and, you know, nobody speaks English there and you have no representation. You have to go do your negotiation the way you did. But, you know, you're in a whole different country, plus a different language. Uh, I can't imagine how, how they go about it. It's a huge transition uh, from, from a Latin country to, to the American way of life. Uh, you know, just the little things, you know, doing your laundry, going out to get and order food, you know, getting into a routine. There are a lot of things that these guys, uh, you know, really need to learn before getting to the big leagues because it's a fast lifestyle. It really is, you know, and uh, you can kind of get in a lot of trouble if you don't have a, a good head on your shoulders. And I don't know what the percentage of Spanish speaking players in MLB is, but it's, it's pretty high. And uh, constant debate when they're hiring coaches, hiring managers is uh, how many Spanish speaking do we have? And are we assimilating people? It's uh, there's so many more considered because the, the game has gotten so global. And I think with the world baseball classic, we're going to see even more as more countries uh, start to grow the game, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Being a bilingual coach is, is definitely sought after these days uh, with the amount of players that are on the roster that, that do speak Spanish. So, uh, you know, that's just, that's kind of the way it is. And uh, you know, it's, it's a good thing to have a bilingual coach on the, on the team because sometimes if there wasn't a guy who spoke great English, I was able to go to that coach and, you know, with the player and have a conversation through the other coach to have him understand what I was trying to, uh, you know, convey to him and get across to him. Because you were telling me uh, in a previous chapter that about playing winter ball. When you played winter ball, was there any issues as far as English speaking there? Did you have coaches that didn't speak English at all or everybody figured out a way? No, I only played one year of winter ball and I played in Puerto Rico. So there was a lot of obviously, uh, you know, American guys down there and, you know, Puerto Rico being part of, you know, the U.S. Uh, islands, they, uh, they spoke uh, very good English. So we go the other way, though, as far as you being a coach going up the minor ranks and in the majors, did you encounter pitchers that did not speak English or very poorly? And did you have any kind of uh, issues that way as far as communication goes? There was a few, uh, definitely, especially in the minor leagues when you're young. You know, they come over from the Latin countries and they haven't gone through their English classes yet, which most teams provide uh, in, a, in a different setting in spring training or in uh, instructional league. They go through that. But uh, yeah, in the young levels, there are a lot of guys who, uh, you know, aren't fluent in English and have a hard time understanding that you can kind of get the point across to them, but then for them to absorb the information is a lot tougher than a guy who is fluent in English uh, and, and can understand it uh, well. So I would always have a coach that, you know, I knew uh, in that particular team or player that I could always go to and, and use them as a tool to get the point across and to get the player to have a good understanding 
of what I was trying to teach. So from a transition standpoint, now going back into your shoes, when you finish off in that diner, you finish your negotiation uh, with Mr. Gillick, Mr. Ash, make the decision. Walk us through what what happens from there. Is, was there a press conference uh, back in those days? And then what is the transition to when you finally became a member of the Blue Jays organization? Yeah, so no press conference. Uh, the scout for the Blue Jays out of New York uh, was there. He had obviously was sat in on the conversation. Uh, we got the paperwork. We signed it. They said, okay, in two days, the coach, uh, I'm sorry, the scout's going to bring you up to Auburn, New York, and you're going to meet St. Catharines in Auburn, New York, and, uh, you know, start your professional career. And that's what happened. I packed my stuff up. Uh, I, I got on a plane with the uh, scout. We landed in Syracuse, New York, got in a car, met the team in Auburn, New York. I got dropped off, and uh, my professional career started. Two days later. Two days later. So it's not like, hey, take a week, go take some vacation, start prepping yourself mentally, start backing up. No, you, we, you're a hired gun. It's time to go. You sign that dotted line, you're their property, you're part of their organization, and they want you there to start learning and preparing yourself, hopefully, to get to the big leagues. How much of a whirlwind is that? Like one minute, you know, you're at home, and the next minute, you're off to meet the team. That's always a whirlwind. I mean, I didn't know who I was going to meet. I didn't really know anybody on the team. Uh, I was walking into, you know, the unknown, essentially. Uh, you know, I got to Auburn, New York, and I looked at the field. And the first thing I thought of to myself was, oh, my God, I gave up LSU for this because the field was terrible. I mean, it was like a high school field. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. But uh you know, I transitioned pretty well. Um, you know, I made, I think, five starts and, and pitched pretty well and, and ended up finishing the season with only five starts in St. Catharines because they were protecting me coming out of high school and, and doing all that stuff. And then went to instructional league. And that's kind of where, you know, I got the full introduction to the organization and to all the coaches and all the front office and, and all the players that, uh, you know, I had, you know, long long relationships with throughout the minor leagues. Any memories of St. Catharines? Small little town, about an hour and a half from uh, Toronto. Um, it was nice. It was small. The field was great. Uh, you know, I lived with uh, a few of the guys that had been drafted and were with the Blue Jays at that time. Uh, the Blue Jays had a gentleman by the name of Scott Burrell, who was a basketball player at UConn. And uh, we lived together for, for a few months. Believe it or not, you go buy a house now in St. Catharines in the year 2022, it's probably easily 800000 for a detached house. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, right? It's, it's, uh, it, it, it's a long ways away from 1990. Don't, don't get me wrong. But yes. uh, there was like a couple of restaurants to go eat at. And, you know, they treated the players well because, you know, that was kind of, you know, their little thing in St. Catharines was their A-ball team from the Blue Jays. And that first offseason, what was that like? Uh, not much. I mean, after I got done with the season, I went to Instructional League. Instructional League lasted for six weeks, got done around Halloween, uh, went home, tried to decompress and, and have an understanding and prepare for the next year. And I went down to spring training, you know, basically two months later. 
uh, down to Florida and uh, prepped in Florida in warm weather instead of being in New York. And then, uh, you know, went and got put on uh, the Myrtle Beach Hurricanes team and started another season after that. It's amazing. It's amazing how quickly goes and the time flies, eh? Yeah, time flies. Like, you, know, you, you think back about how, how those seasons went and, you know, it's, it seems long at, the, at that time, but it goes so fast. I mean, uh, you know, 140 games in the minor leagues flies by now. You know, that guy behind my shoulder there with the uh, mismatched uh, pants and jersey, you know? Yeah, that was St. Catharines. Actually, that was down in uh, Dunedin, Florida during spring training that they took that picture. But, uh, yeah, that was uh, 18 or 19 years old. And, and first major league camp, any, uh, any uh, distinct memories that flow through you? Uh, yeah, my first major league camp was with the Oakland A's in 1994. So, so, so with the Jays, it was always minor league camp and it wasn't until gotcha. So, so when you break camp, so when you, so when you get to the major league camp with Oakland, you've already been called up. Oh yeah. I've already been in the big leagues for six weeks oh, with them before see. I had my first spring training with the, see. with the big league team. So, uh, that's like hard and horse, you know, I guess, I mean, it's just, it's a little bit different, right? Guys usually go to big league camp just to get their feet wet and have an understanding of what it is. But, uh, you know, I never had that opportunity and, and that was okay. You know, I just uh, went about my business in the minor league camp and had fun with the guys and, and just, just pitched. Any, uh, any meeting with uh, Mr. Van Poppel? I played with Todd Van Poppel in 1993 when I got traded over the Oakland, Oakland A's. He got called up. I was up there. And then 1994, uh, we broke uh, the rotation together. And stories as far as interaction because of the draft year and you guys ended up together. Uh, how, how, how was it, you know, as far as, you know, the camaraderie there? Oh, we were fine. It was great. I mean, you know, when, when you have guys who are teammates, you, you know, you talk about a whole bunch of different things, but the draft never really came up between us. I mean, he had, you know, his, his journey or his road that he was going to take and he ended up signing. Uh, and, and I had mine and, you know, we didn't know each other then. We never had any of these perfect game things that we played against each other. So, uh, you know, it was he was a teammate, uh, one that you root for, uh, and, and and you go to battle with uh, uh, every fifth day when you're when you're playing in the big leagues. So, no emails to him uh, at retirement saying, "Haha, I lasted longer than you." No, no emails. I didn't really email anybody when I retired. It was get in my car and come home and and have an understanding of, you know what. I played for a very long time. I did the best I could. I competed at a high level and I gave everything I had. Well, we'll be talking about that in the future chapter, my friend. Don't worry, that's coming. So that was a great way to segue uh, to the end of chapter 10. We're going to take a pause here and then we'll come back to chapter 11 with a mystery chapter that uh, Steve does not know what's coming. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> 